Just a quick note before we begin. This episode features adult language and descriptions of violence that you'd expect to hear in a podcast about the mafia. So if you have kids in the room, you may want to listen with headphones. How did you feel on the day of the trial? Before you took the stand, were you nervous? Yeah, I was fucking, um, I don't I can't explain it. It was like, it was a sickening feeling. After eight years and a ton of law enforcement work, finally, we'd arrived at the moment of truth, the trial for Al Bruno's murder. And it wasn't only about Bruno's murder. We also brought charges for the murder of Gary Westerman, Anthony Arellata's own brother-in-law, and for conspiracy to murder Frank Dadabo, the union guy who got shot nine times but survived. Arellata would be testifying against Artie Nigro, the boss of the Genovese crime family, and we needed him to deliver. But let me be clear. Nigro wasn't the reason for Arellata's sickening feeling. I could give a fuck less about Artie at this time. Arellata blamed Nigro for messing up a good thing the relatively peaceful and highly lucrative operation the mob had going in Springfield. What they did to our area was they completely destroyed it with greed and just bad, bad decisions. Decisions about killing people, extorting people, bringing all the heat with that. Nigra wasn't the only one facing charges. In this same trial, we were also going after Freddie and Ty Gius. And those guys, Aralata did care about. I was hoping they pled guilty or whatever. I was hoping they cooperated, to be honest with you. But it was Fred and Ty that made you nervous. Well, it didn't make me nervous. It just made me, uh, you know, I didn't feel good. I mean, that was my, you know, my guys. I was with them. You know, I did time in prison with Ty. A lot of memories with him there. Me and Freddie, you know, we were on the streets since the uh, early 90s doing shit. And a lot of fun times, a lot of, you know. At this point, though, Aralata had already made his choice to join our side. I mean, it it hurts. It sucks that I had to, you know, go through it. I wish they pled guilty and could have got, you know, 20-something years or whatever. But once they didn't, they're not my friends no more. If you're not my friend, then I am who I am. So it's like, it was a shitty situation, but... That's it. I mean, it was like, I made my decision, you guys made yours. As far as my office was concerned, going into the trial, we knew we had a solid case. But we also knew, even with all the evidence in the world, you could still blow it. Juries are unpredictable. In fact, in the trial I did just before the Bruno case against another gangster you might have heard of, a guy named John Gotti Jr., my star cooperating witness was so brutally honest about beating and killing people that the jury turned against him. It's not that the jury didn't believe our cooperator in that case, but the violence got to a point where it was just too much, and that jury ended up hanging. So this time around, we'd need to use every prosecution tactic that any of us had ever learned to take down Artie Nigro and the Gius brothers. Everything was on the line. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Up Against the Mob, the Springfield Crew. I'm Ellie Honig. Episode 6, 
a beautiful conspiracy. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. In any trial that hangs on the credibility of cooperating witnesses, the best strategy is to back up their testimony with hard evidence. And in this trial, we had hard evidence in spades. We had phone records, a hotel receipt, wiretap recordings, prison phone calls, and of course, Gary Westerman's body. So the three prosecutors on this case, Mark Lanfer, Daniel Goldman, and me, we weren't worried about having enough corroborating evidence to show the jury. If anything, we may have had too much, according to Goldman. One of, I think, the biggest problems that prosecutors run into is throwing all of the evidence at the jury. We call that the kitchen sink strategy. You give the jury everything. You show them every photograph, play every wiretap, and call every possible witness. The risk is the jury could just get overwhelmed. So in this trial, we went for a different strategy. Be selective. Show the jury only the most pertinent evidence. You call it thin to win. That, I think, was probably the one thing I was most able to bring to the team. But I learned that the hard way because the first mob trial I did was kitchen sink. And we were up there three to four months on a case that was nowhere near this level of seriousness. And we lost the jury. And so what I really stressed to you guys was thin to win. Like you said, get the best stuff in and get them out of there. But even with all this hard evidence, none of it pointed directly to Artie Nigro. We needed our cooperating witnesses to make that connection to testify that Nigro gave the order to kill Al Bruno. And it wasn't going to work to simply put Arlotta on the stand and let him talk. There's a technique to it. As a prosecutor, you have to convince the jury to believe the testimony of people who are criminals. And that's not always so simple. A lot of people who don't have experience doing criminal trials underestimate the power of cross-examination. If a defense attorney asks the right questions, they can use our cooperating witnesses' checkered pasts to paint them as dishonest and untrustworthy. And when a cooperating witness has his credibility undermined, it is devastating to a case, not just because the jury may disregard that witness's testimony, but because you can end up with something that we call spillover prejudice. If you have a cooperating witness who sort of goes south during trial, the jury often thinks that all of the government's witnesses are suspect because if they're going to vouch for this cooperating witness and this cooperating witness is not telling the truth, then how are we to believe all their other evidence? This was a huge risk to our case. So we devised a strategy to reinforce our cooperating witness's credibility. But it was going to take some work. Each of our cooperating witnesses had their own unique weaknesses that the defense team could exploit. For Frankie Roach, 
the hired gunman who shot Al Bruno, it was his temperament. The evidence all showed what a hothead and crazy temper that this guy has. He could fly off the hook. Goldman was responsible for putting Roach on the witness stand, eliciting his testimony and preparing Roach to be grilled by the defense. I was most concerned that he was going to lose it on the stand and that he would fight with the defense attorney and that he would just say something completely crazy that would either show him to be a complete nut job or that he would just fly off the handle and undermine his credibility. So whenever Goldman met with Roach, they didn't discuss specific cross-examination threads or lines of questioning. Instead, they focused on Roach's demeanor. I spent an enormous amount of time talking to him about they're going to try to rile you up. Know that that's what they're going to do because that's their job. Don't fight. Don't get upset. Don't take it personally. Goldman also advised that if Roach felt his temperament slipping, he should think about the reason he cooperated in the first place. His decision to cooperate was largely so that he would not spend the rest of his life in jail and he could have a relationship with his daughter. I just ended up telling him by the end, every time you're up there, just remember, you're doing this for your daughter. That is why you're doing this. When we put our cooperating witnesses on the stand, we know the defense attorneys will try to impugn them any way they can. That's why before the trial, we make our cooperators tell us every bad thing they've ever done in their entire lives. We want to be prepared. Of course, we can't prevent the defense from asking about those things on cross-examination. But if we beat them to the punch and air out all the dirty laundry first on direct examination, it dulls the impact. And a defense attorney can exploit more than just our cooperators' past crimes. I learned the hard way in another case that they can make a lot of hay with tattoos. I had one cooperator who had an elaborate tattoo on his back, showing a scene of a judge, a jury, a gun, and a bloody knife. As you might guess, that didn't go over too well in court. So this time, I wanted to be prepared. One day, Goldman and I visited Roach in prison, and I asked Roach to lift up his prison scrubs and show us his tats. He was very heavily tattooed. He had one massive tattoo on his chest, I think, that said God. And I remember with the God tattoo, asking him, well, what does that mean? Do you think you're God or do you believe in God? Do you remember his response? No. Both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, how, that's very Frankie though, right? It is incredibly Frankie. Tattoos can make an impression on juries. So can the witnesses' clothing. Controlling the optics during the trial is critical for both sides. That's why defense attorneys go out of their way to make sure the jury never sees their client in an orange jumpsuit. They don't want the jury's first impression to be, that person looks like a criminal. But for the prosecution, the strategy is the complete opposite. For cooperating witnesses, we make them wear their prison scrubs. Anthony Arellata was no exception. Did you think we should have let you wear a suit or something? It didn't matter to me because, you know what I mean? It was like I knew my life was all fucked up. I didn't give a fuck what I wore. Yeah. Do you know why we had you wear prison clothes? To look like I wasn't getting any special treatment or something. Yeah. We didn't want the jury to see you as literally being someone we dressed up. 
The trial began around St. Patrick's Day in March of 2011 in the Daniel Patrick Moynihan Courthouse in Lower Manhattan. That courthouse looks like you'd expect a federal courthouse to look. It's a tall, 27-story building made of granite, marble, and oak. On the morning Frankie Roach was called to take the stand, we were sure we had thought of everything. But there was one thing that we could not prep this witness for. The drive. Federal marshals picked him up from Otisville Prison in upstate New York, about a two-hour drive to the courthouse. Here's Dan Goldman again. He's in a van that has no windows, and he gets incredibly carsick. So he arrives at the courthouse, vomits, and so I go see him. He's like, shirts untucked, he's lying down, just absolutely feels terrible. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what is gonna happen? Like, we can't adjourn the trial because he's sick, how's he gonna do? So Goldman tracked down some medicine to help settle Roach's stomach. Then he gave his witness a pep talk. You gotta get through this, you gotta do this. Just remember, you're doing this for your daughter. In the 11th hour, Roach summoned the strength to take the witness stand. Stephanie Barry, the Springfield crime reporter, remembers Roach's testimony. He struck me as, in a way, one of the most sinister people I've ever seen on the witness stand. He just, the way he looked, he had this kind of thousand-yard stare. He just deadpanned every response that he gave on the witness stand. It seemed that Roach's deadpan answers were the opposite of what the defense attorneys were looking for. Harvey Fishbein, one of Freddie Gius's defense attorneys, was the first to cross-examine Roach. He asked about the night that Roach shot Al Bruno in excruciating detail. I talked about this with Dan Goldman. And this is a standard thing that you will see where the defense lawyer tries to almost reenact the shooting and really rattle the witness. Now, we're going to do a little role-playing here. I couldn't resist. Goldman and I used the court transcripts to reenact the reenactment. Do you want to play Frankie Roach or do you want to play the defense lawyer? You have the deeper voice, so you should probably be Frankie. I'll play Frankie. Am I correct that at some point you started to approach the car that he, Al Bruno, was getting into? Yeah, I yelled out to him first when he started getting into the vehicle. And you had your gun out, right? Yes. And it was a 45, wasn't it? Yes. What kind of a noise does a 45 make? A lot of noise. How loud? Very loud. At this point, Harvey Fishbein, the character I'm playing, begins dramatically walking toward Frankie Roach. Fishbein's holding his hand out in the formation of a gun. He walks toward the witness stand. Boom! Little louder. Boom! Little louder than that. And you shot him again? Yes. Which time did you shoot him in the testicles? Don't know which. Sorry? Wasn't the first, wasn't the last. Sometime in between you decided to shoot him in the testicles, right? But Roach didn't get to answer that last question. The judge, P. Kevin Castell, he'd had enough. He was generally very prosecution-friendly, but he also could just blow his top at anybody, prosecutors, defense lawyers. He kept 
very tight control over his courtroom. You know, you lived somewhat in fear of his wrath. And at this moment, Judge Costell's wrath was on full display. Harvey Fishbein was only a few feet away from Roach, and he's practically yelling in Roach's face. But Judge Costell was not having it. He cut Fishbein off and said, you can return to the podium and watch your tone. What Harvey Fishbein was doing is exactly what I expected somebody to do with Frankie Roach, which was to try to get him back in that moment and have him react poorly in some way. Just get under his skin and make him look out to be a psychotic, sociopathic killer. And the part that was so funny was Fishbein thought he was building to this dramatic crescendo and he was stepping one step at a time closer. And then right as he was building to his crescendo, the judge just goes, you can go back to the podium now. He just took all the wind right out of it. Stephanie Barry was impressed. She knew all about Frankie Roach's epic temper. And he actually was like the sleeper breakout witness for me. How so? I just expected the street kid to maybe get tripped up, to maybe get rattled a little bit by, you know, cross-examination, and just none of that happened. I probably, in my 10 years, feel the proudest about the preparation job I did for Frankie Roach. He turned out to be an absolutely phenomenal cooperating witness. But no matter how well Roach did, the actual make-or-break moment was always going to be the testimony of our star witness, Anthony Arellata. That's next. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. If Alana came up and gave me a, a dollar and said, 
hey, I take a dollar. It's a real dollar. I wouldn't believe him. Anthony Arlotta. Yeah. I couldn't accept anything Arlotta said. That's Murray Richmond. He's a legendary criminal defense attorney. As Murray told me in season one of Up Against the Mob, he takes his job defending the accused very seriously. I'm there as Liberty's last champion. I'm the breakwater upon which the massive energies of the prosecution has to hit before it gets to my client. Richmond is 84 years old and still practicing law. He's tried over 400 cases, and his skill in the courtroom earned him the nickname, Don't Worry Murray. Who came up with that name for you, Don't Worry Murray? I got to tell you, I got a half a dozen guys, uh, wise guys mostly, who say that they deserve the credit for that. Artie Nigro hired Murray Richmond to be part of his defense team, but the two men knew each other long before this trial. How long did you know Artie Nigro? When did you meet him around? 25 years before. I met him through a friend of mine who was a made guy. Stacy Richmond, Murray's daughter, was also a lawyer on Nigro's defense team. To me, he was a charming family guy. He was a, not that family, but a regular family person. He really was. He was charming. He wanted to engage you, and he engaged sincerely. He was a lovely person. You know who the Richmonds did not think was a lovely person? Anthony Arellata. There's a human being who admitted to killing his brother-in-law. He takes a shovel and hits his brother-in-law in the head and kills him? Anthony Arellata, setting up his own brother-in-law, demonstrated how dubious a character and he would do anything for himself. Nothing mattered to him. So why wouldn't he lie? And that became the centerpiece of Artie Nigro's defense strategy. I thought that Anthony Arlotta would say anything to get what Anthony Arlotta needed, and it didn't really matter otherwise. They'd argue to the jury that Arlotta wanted a shorter prison sentence. So he told prosecutors what he believed we wanted to hear, that Artie Nigro ordered the murders. Conspiracy is in the eye of the beholder, just like beauty, and you can put together a beautiful conspiracy anytime you need to. There are some times where I just think that the prosecution gets in bed with the worst human beings alive. They give credence to this person. But when I was interviewing the Richmonds, I thought their argument had some flaws. But let me ask you this. Let's put aside for a moment the Al Bruno murder, because I get that you have more wiggle room to argue there. But the shooting of Frank Dadabo, the guy in the Bronx who they shot nine times, right? And our proof at trial was that Anthony Arellata and Ty Gius shot him and Freddie Gius was the driver. Those three guys have no connection on this earth to Frank Dadabo. They t- didn't even know his name when they shot him other than through Artie Nigro. So why do you feel that Artie was not at all part of that? Hold on. The only one who said that Artie had any connection was Arellata. But the prosecution felt confident Arellata was telling the truth. Mark Lanfer, the lead prosecutor, spent hours with Arellata, listening to him tell the same stories over and over again and checking for any inconsistencies. I met with him a lot of times and he really was an open book on day one and just never changed. Was there ever any story or detail or anything that he gave us that we had any reason to doubt or that wasn't proven out? No. He was phenomenal in that respect. His memory was unbelievable and his candor was just astounding. 
when Aralata finally took the stand, he seemed like his usual self. Here's Stephanie Barry again. I don't want to say he had swagger because it's hard to have swagger when you're testifying in, you know, prison drabs. But he just seemed to not really shirk any responsibility. Um, He is who he is. He doesn't apologize for who he is. As we expected, during Aralata's cross-examination, the defense tried to paint him as a sleazy sociopath who only cares about himself. And they picked some choice details from Aralata's life to make their point, like when Aralata cheated on his wife with her own sister. We were at a nightclub. The music was loud. Couldn't hear. We both had too much to drink. You know, next thing you know, you're whispering in the air or the the lips start getting touching the ear, and it led to one thing led to that. And that's all it was. It was, a, it was a couple hookups. This looked especially bad because Aralata's sister-in-law, the woman he slept with, was involved with Gary Westerman at the time. Gosh, from our point of view as prosecutors, you know, it's bad enough you killed the guy. Turns out not only that, you were, you were sleeping with his wife, who is also your own wife's sister. <laughs> we were like, Anthony, did you, do you have to do everything crazy? You know, it sucks that it had to come out, but I mean, it was just a a one thing hookup and, you know, it was just us being out drinking and I was separated. It was just a one time thing. I mean, I would have wanted to crawl underneath the rug if I had to admit something like that publicly. And I think I shot a look over my shoulder at Tommy Murphy, who was the lead investigator with the state police, like, wrinkling my nose, and he just looked at me and shrugged his shoulders. (laughs) It was cringe-inducing, for sure. The whole time the defense attorneys poked around Aralata's personal relationships, he never cracked. He kept his cool. But there was one line of questioning that pushed Aralata to the brink. The thing that I'm pissed about is the part where, okay, they said I left my family penniless. Now, that's a bunch of bullshit. The defense attacked Aralata's wealth, something that had very little to do with our case, but everything to do with his pride. One of the defense attorneys mentioned that when Aralata was arrested, he left his family without any money, and his wife had to apply for government assistance. Aralata was pissed. If you count leaving somebody over 100000 in cash penniless, I had cash money in all my suits and everything. And then there was money being dropped off after the fact that was uh, my racket money that was being dropped off there. And then Stephanie Barry reported what came out at trial, that Aralata's wife had to apply for welfare benefits. When Aralata heard about that, he couldn't let it slide. And I got mad at the prosecutor because I said, redirect me and ask me about leaving them penniless. And they said, oh, yeah, we'll get back on it. But they never did. No, we never did. Aralata's family finances were not relevant to our case. As prosecutors, it's our job to ensure that our witnesses stay focused and don't get sidetracked by personal drama. So we were not going to redirect. Sorry, Anthony. In total, Aralata spent five days on the witness stand. Two and a half for direct and two and a half for cross. The defense made Aralata seem like a bad husband and father, but we felt they struggled to knock his core credibility. Mark Lanfer was responsible for putting Aralata on the stand. I mean, he did great. 
He was exactly what you would want a cooperating witness to be. His demeanor was super even throughout. He sounded on the stand just as he had sounded in every one of our proffer sessions. And to me, you know, that's exactly what you want, right? You want the person to be themselves. And he was. And uh, and I think the jury just ate it up. By the time the prosecution rested, we had called 18 witnesses, including Brian Warren, the FBI agent, and Frank Dadabo, the union official who survived the murder attempt. Our witnesses told their stories, and we presented hard evidence to back them up. The defense called no witnesses. This isn't nearly as uncommon as you might think. In any criminal trial, the prosecution bears the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So the defense often chooses wisely to present no case and to simply argue that the prosecution failed to carry its heavy burden. And so, after the prosecution rested, the trial went straight to closing arguments. For our team, that was me. In any trial, closing arguments are, of course, enormously important. This is when we take all the evidence and weave it together into one complete story. A story that demonstrates that the defendants committed the crimes they're accused of beyond a reasonable doubt. The moment I joined the trial team months earlier, I started writing the closing. I spent hours honing the arguments and tweaking the language to get it just right. In total, my closing was about three hours long, which was pretty short considering there were three defendants and a long list of charges, including multiple murders and murder conspiracies. I felt good about the closing. I was ready to deliver it to the jury. But before I had the chance, something unexpected happened, as Mark Lanfer will tell you. The day before the closings, as is typical, the judge says, all right, well, how long are you going to need for closing? And he said, I need three hours. (laughs) That's got to be a joke. (laughs) I remember Castell, he might have even thrown papers up in the air and said, that has to be a joke. (laughs) He said, no, it's not a joke. Castell, in a nice way, was livid. He said, absolutely not. You cannot have three hours. Come back to me with a realistic estimate. But Judge Castell wasn't done with me yet. I think he even said something like, take a look at some studies on human attention span, Mr. Honig. There's a reason classroom seminars aren't three hours. I mean, he basically took you to school and said, you're crazy if you want to hold this story for three hours. And I was freaked when he said, you got to cut it in half. It hurt, but I went back and went, this is out, Ugh, this is out, Ugh, I'm going to reduce this to one sentence. I cut the closing down to 90 minutes. I basically had no choice. There's no recording of my original closing, but I just happened to have a copy of it right here. Ahem. And so when the dust finally settled and 2003 drew to a close, Nigro's plans to take over and remake Springfield had been realized. Arolata and the Giuses had arrived as the dominant crew on the streets. And make no mistake, they did it with sheer brute force. They did it together by unleashing an epic spasm of violence. These defendants on the streets, they live by their own rules with force and fear to determine who prevails and who's right. But now, now they're in here. Now they're in a court of law, a place where disputes get settled, not with beatings, not with baseball bats, not with ice picks, not with a hail of bullets, but with evidence and the law 
and your common sense. And during this trial, you've seen how those three things, evidence, the law, and your common sense, prove beyond a reasonable doubt the guilt of these three defendants, Arthur Nigro, Freddie Gius, and Ty Gius. And we ask you to find them guilty on all counts. Your summation on that particular case was probably the best summation I have ever seen by a prosecutor. That's defense lawyer Murray Richmond again. I turned to you and said to you that day, you didn't use a note, and I absolutely say your, your summation was brilliant. And you said to me, Murray, don't forget it. I said, I'm not going to forget it. <laughs> that, that's to this day one of the best, maybe the best compliment I've ever gotten considering the source. I appreciate it then. I appreciate it now. I'm glad we have it on tape so it will be preserved <laughs> forever. After each side made their final arguments, Judge Castell sent the jury off to the deliberation room to decide the fate of the case. Juries can be fickle. For a conviction, we needed all 12 members to vote that the defendants were guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. All it takes is a single dissenting member to make the jury hang. So waiting for the jury to decide is nerve-wracking for prosecutors. And we thought we'd be in a state of anxiety for a long time. With three defendants and a litany of charges against them, we expected the deliberation to take days. I have a very distinct memory of how you informed me that we had a verdict. Do you I, remember this? I don't. So I had gone to the cafeteria on a different floor of the building to get lunch. I, I thought we were just settling in. So I'm walking back in the sort of little uh, reception area outside of our jury room with my tray of lunch. All of a sudden, the door busts open. You're in full suit, sort of striding past me with maybe a couple of the agents or paralegal, and you just go, they have a verdict. And I went, I put my lunch down on like the floor. And I just like, whoop, did a 180 with you. Was, I was not expecting it at that moment. I abandoned my lunch and ran back to the courtroom to hear the jury's decision. Finally, after a nearly eight-year investigation into the murder of Al Bruno, it was time to find out if all that hard work, getting the bad guys to flip, had finally paid off. On the next Up Against the Mob. Up until that moment, everything bad I've done, everything I've been through in my life, I never really had a sleepless night. I never stressed about nothing in my life, ever. That night when I got that, I didn't sleep all night that night. Because I knew now my life was going to definitely change. For more wild stories about the Springfield Mafia and the inside scoop on how prosecutors go up against the mob, become a member of Cafe Insider. For a limited time, you can get 40% off on your first year of annual membership. Head to cafe.com slash mob and get access to all exclusive cafe content. That's cafe.com slash mob. Up Against the Mob is a production of Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Billy is the senior producer and writer. Adam Waller and Noah Azalai are the producers. Isaac Kestenbaum is our editor. Lissa Soep is our story consultant. This episode was mixed and sound designed by David Tadashur. Original score composed by Nat Wiener. 
Tamara Sepper and Art Chung are the executive producers. I'm Ellie Honig. If you enjoyed this episode, hit follow in your listening app. You can also write a review and let us know what you thought of the show. Thanks for listening. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.